0: Hi, this is Pete Worrell, and I wanna welcome you to this week's episode of Positive Enterprise Value. Positive Enterprise Value is a podcast hosted on the Bigelow LLC website, which website address is bigelowllc.com, where you can also find other information we freely share with high-performing entrepreneur owner-managers who wanna build their enterprise value and create a capital gain someday. This week, we have an unusual gift which is we have a recording of a super interesting panel discussion held between four entrepreneur-owner-managers at our most recent uh, Bigelow Forum held in September 2019 at the -the Wentworth-by-the-Sea Resort. The panel is moderated by my partner, Rob McLeod, and consists of four uh, super successful entrepreneurs, all of whom have been through a uh, capital gain transaction where they built positive enterprise value for a long period of time in advance of the transaction and are now thinking about their next chapters, how build, how to build log- positive legacy, how to give back to the community, and so on. The panel includes Deb Grass, who is one of the co-founders of AstroSeal, which is a lightning strike protection business. Uh, Jan Bloomstrand, who is the CEO of NRG Systems, which is a designer and manufacturer of uh, monitoring equipment for wind turbine farms, Ross Silverstein, who is the founder and CEO of I Promote You, which is a super interesting uh, technology-enabled distribution company of promotional materials, and Mark Taylor, who is the former owner and uh, chairman of the board of Reading Plus, a company which... Uh, provides uh, customized uh, reading solutions for uh, elementary school uh, kids and adolescents to help them attain uh, better reading comprehension and speed. The reason why the dialogue was so interesting, I found, was because there were genuine big differences of opinion about uh, what uh, each of the four of them was actually trying to accomplish uh, in the years leading up to a cap-gain transaction what were some of their inspirations and motivations, as well as uh, kind of where they are, what chapter they're in now. And one of the things that um, is, is interesting is that uh, their conversation is juxtaposed against the background of uh, Deb Grass, for example, having done a transaction more than five years ago, uh, compared to Mark Taylor, whose uh, closing of the uh, recap of Reading Plus was only five months ago. So. Uh, The conversation is a bit spirited. Uh, Rob tries to keep it uh, a little bit on course, but hey, these are entrepreneur owner managers and you're not gonna tell them uh, what they can or can't talk about. So I think you're gonna find it's uh, uh, at times uh, uh, very interesting and insightful, at times very, I found it very moving, and at times you're gonna laugh out loud, I think. So I hope you enjoy it. Here it is, uh, the panel discussion from the 2019 Bigelow Forum.
1: I'd like one of you to address what was the main motivation for you to consider a transaction? I know often there are multiple reasons, but if you look back, what was the main reason that the time was right and it was um, a good decision for you to have a transaction? Maybe I'll start with you, Deb.
2: Okay. Uh, In 2014, which is when we met Bigelow, our children were all educated and somewhat launched. although they do reappear on a regular basis, I will say. <laughs> and I really had a tremendous amount of respect for what Ken enjoyed doing. And I could see that he was starting to wane a bit. My job would be the same day in and day out. There were certain things you had to do. So we had quite a conversation. And I said, you need to be self-reflective. You need to know what it is you would like to do. So we had a serious discussion about, in the aerospace industry, you need approvals to sell your product. We had gone from one approval, when Ken first launched it in 1985, to 150 approvals. So we were approved at 150 places. And that international, global, you, you name it, we mailed it, <laughs> shipped it, and I said, how are we doing? He said, I'm, I'm starting to flag, I said, and that means what? And he said, I think, I think I'm done. I said, okay, but that's got to be your choice. I will say that we revisited that discussion many, many times after engaging Bigelow. Bigelow was an unbelievable partner in this. Um, As Rob McCloud said to us the first time, you don't know what you don't know. And he was absolutely right. Selling your product is one thing, selling your company, your life work is something else altogether. And we didn't know what we didn't know.
1: Thank you, so in essence more about your and Ken's personal freedom than anything driving it like from the industry or the business perspective. So a lot on the EOM clock, right, was was part of it. Jan, how about you? Which clock was driving it? The, The company, the industry, your clock?
3: Yeah, it was a little bit of everything. And I think if I had to pick one, it was what you just said. I got to the point, too, where I said, I'm done. I knew that in order to sustain the level of work that needs to happen to take a company to the next level and where I wanted it to go. I wanted it to have the right person and the right, someone with more energy than I had at the time. I had truly loved what I had done, but I had kind of reached that level of fatigue and you know, that whole risk aversion and not wanting to blow it. I had a company that when I took over, uh, we were a $16 million company in 2004, and we grew to almost 60 in four years and it was it was a wonderful wonderful time and then 2008 happened and the renewable energy industry got hit hard by the economic crash and we took a dive quite a ways down and the company went through some some pretty rough times i had to do a layoff and i worked hard to get it back to a, a good level pre-sale and i was pretty satisfied with that that and that sort of Motivation of, you know, I, do I really want to go through this again? Do I really want to risk having to go through another cycle? And the industry was at a great time. So that was the industry clock. It was the right time there. I had already passed the baton of leadership to our CFO who became the president, and he did eventually become the CEO after the sale was done. So I'd already passed that leadership. And he was not too far from retirement himself. So in terms of that company clock, there was going to be a leadership change at some point anyway, because he was, uh, was not going to be there for a whole lot longer. And then from the personal clock, like I said, I was ready to move on. I had made that decision, and then I got diagnosed with cancer, and that just did it. You know, that was like, time is now. I remember having that breakfast with you, and we kind of looked at each other and said, let's go.
1: Yeah, yeah. Your story's an interesting one where you built so much value, and then the industry turned, and it definitely went down. I remember when we chatted, and you were happy to learn that you couldn't sell the business any year that the performance kept going down, that we would have to wait, and I remember that vividly, and I remember thinking, that the cycles that were going through the wind energy market, if they kept it up, you you had to be prepared to be holding on to these businesses for 10 years, right? And as soon as your horizon wasn't that, right. and then everything else came on. Thank you. So Ross, you're a little bit of an outlier here, and I, I love this juxtaposition. So what about your motivation? Because it wasn't about you slowing down.
4: All right, so um, <laughs> look, we had friends and family investors, they've been in for a long time. and. Yes, we wanted to give them their exit, clean up this corporate structure, and yes, I wanted additional growth capital, but the real motivation was money. I wanted to take some money off the table. I worked hard for a long time, earned a, a nice salary, but um, you know when I started the business, there was an end game, and the end game was to realize some significant wealth and the market was very what, frothy. And so I put my ducks in a row and felt that the time was perfect to uh, take advantage of that. So that was my motivation.
1: So in your transaction, we got you a financial partner. You stayed on as the CEO. You're yep. still doing it today. You got a new partner that's helping you scale and grow the business. Yep. Your old shareholders, did they all go away? Were there 20, 30, 40?
4: We had about 30. And there was only one, a co-founder of mine who was really a financial investor, he rolled over some, I rolled over a significant amount, and some staff who were playing key roles going forward, they were granted some equity rights and they also were given the opportunity to invest some of their own money. So there may be a half a dozen employees that have a small equity stake. Got it. Thank you.
1: Mark, how about you? When you think of your motivation, uh, we have freedom. We have cleaning up the shareholder base. What What was going through your mind?
5: I mean, I can relate to both of those, but I think for me it had a lot to do about being honest with who I was and what I had been good at that I was largely a product person and I had been fortunate enough to step into a company at a time where we needed a revision to the product. And I had reached a place where we had grown considerably, but what was really necessary was sales and marketing is the next step. And that's not my home base. I was lucky to be in a kind of R&D capacity and run our company a little bit like a design shop as far as what we were developing and use a third party network. So this next phase just felt like, I would be really forcing it and stretching myself to be in a role that I would never be as passionate or as skilled as someone who really loves that. So I wanted to keep myself in doing what I love and doing, uh, being great at what I do, and that wasn't, that wasn't me.
1: So a little bit about your transaction. How did the transaction help that for you? Where did you end up in terms of ownership, role? I'm
5: pretty happy with how it wound up yeah so I've um, continued on sold 85% of the company rolled over a certain amount um, and have put myself in a position of being in a product strategy role with the team so to date I'm fairly hands-off and trying to be but um, steering the kind of core product team and working on the board with the folks sterling partners out of Chicago who purchased um, to help them make smart product moves that are in line with what we're doing with sales
1: and marketing Excellent. I'll throw this out to the four of you and take a hand at who wants to answer this. What were you most afraid of when you really decided, okay, we're going to do a transaction? Were you most afraid of telling your management team what the community would think, what it was going to do to you personally changing your role? If you look back, what was something that you really dreaded about this? And and then I just want you to reflect on, well, How did that all work out or did it not? Anybody want to take that on?
4: So I started the company, as I said, I had uh, a co-founder who was a longtime friend and I had worked with in the past and brought on as a third board member someone else that I knew very well who invested some money and over the years, it was a rather informal board arrangement. We would meet quarterly and go through the things you typically go through, and they would be available for check-in calls, but they were very hands-off and and, uh, deferential to my familiarity with the business. And while I knew that this is what I would need to do to realize my goals and bringing on a a financial partner Uh, I also recognize that it would change things now it was important to me that they be people that I enjoyed working with and they are terrific but there's just new people that you have to get to know and different ways of doing things and a little more formal oversight and so you know that I mean, I I wouldn't say I dreaded it, but it was something I recognized was going to be different. And I would frequently remind myself that they need me more than I need them. This deal never would have happened if I were not going to stay on. And they even told me that their biggest fear is me leaving. So it's kind of interesting how we each can sort of fear the same thing.
1: Yeah, I mean, thinking that you're the founder and you relished in not having a boss, you are not the chair of your board. You're actually reporting to somebody for the first time in a long time. And that can be new, and we think you got a good group there, but that clearly is a struggle for folks that, you know, stay on. Mark, you'll you should be listening closely. <laughs> Uh, and I know there's some people in the audience that have those kind of questions on their mind, and, and and we'll get to some of those. Would would either of you two like to kind of think about your deepest fear here?
3: Okay. Well, I kind of feared for what was going to happen to the company through this transition. You know, when you, you first start out, you don't know. You know you want to sell, but you don't know who you're going to sell to. You don't know who's going to step up to the plate. You don't know who's going to take this this company on, and and this this company had become my life, my identity, you know, I built it 35 years, and all of a sudden it was gonna be someone else's baby. And I I worried for my employees, and I worried for my family. You can't not let go when you sell, and you know in your heart that the company's culture is gonna change just by virtue of the fact that someone else is gonna be taking the reins. That's just what happens. And I worried about whether this nice corporate culture we had was going to continue to be good for the employees. Were they going to continue to have jobs that they Enjoyed? Were they going to be asked to move to some other place? Were their jobs going to be eliminated? And that and that really concerned me. And then for my family, you know, I have two children who, at the time, really didn't have any interest in the business. It's funny that they got an interest late. You know, and my daughter said, "I think I blew it. I think I blew an opportunity, Mom." It's like, "Ooh, um, don't sell it quite yet." But um. so I, you know, I worried about was I somehow failing them or letting them down, that the family business was passing from my hands to someone else's, and was it the right decision for, for them? And, you know, I think in the end it, it turned out okay. I, you know, the company I sold to a publicly traded company, it is very, very different, and as I talk to the employees there, they feel the difference, but it's not. Some parts are good and some parts are maybe not so good. It's just different. Um, so I think it's turned out all right.
1: Thank you for that. The company and the family are right there in the front of everybody's mind, right, when you think about this. And the fact that you don't know who it is doesn't allow you to project the cultural fit, right, especially in a long process. So we get that. Deb, you want
2: to? Just very briefly, our fear was slightly different. We owned the real estate that the company was on. We owned all the stock. And Ken's attitude, and mine as well, was done is done is done. And our fear was not what were we going to do. Um, we were hoping that the sale would help us take care of what we were going to do. But it was that we wanted it all to go. And were we making too big a leap to think that it was all going to go? And we both credit Bigelow with keeping us on the straight and narrow and standing by us when they drilled you know, 23 holes through the concrete in our factory to see if we were pouring stuff down for in my environmental difficulties. Um, true, story. But, uh, true story. True story, true um, story. Kept coming back anyway. Bigelow was a great source of support to us, but that was our fear. And we would do, I called it the yo-yo dance, uh, oh, today's a good day, today's a bad day. Is it gonna work? Is it not gonna work? And you see somebody come in, draw a big plug out of the floor in your company, and it's like, what are you guys looking for? That was our fear. Yeah. but we did through bigelow's guidance sell the real estate and the company and rob McLeod told us what the number was going to be and he was 100% right
1: sort of <laughs> always aim low right Ross? Yeah. Like you might I, want to add in something I, here I,
4: I i want to add in and uh, maybe it's my circumstances were different i hear they lo- you know second, third, fourth generation businesses. I'm I'm just a lot more practical. Our employees got paid and they got paid well. But they got paid to do the job that they were hired to do. I don't think anyone has a job for life. And while I'm in charge, I'll do what I think is right. But my focus wasn't you know, what's going to happen to the employees. Maybe I'm just not as nice a person <laughs> as you, But and, and my identity was not my business. I had very clear separation from my business life, my personal life, and I'll tell people that I think, anyway, the thing I do best is be a dad, and it has nothing to do with my business. Um, so, Uh, For me, it's, you know, again, I started a business with a goal in mind and I see the end game and I'm taking uh, advantage of the opportunity that uh, presented to me. And so those things which are perfectly understandable just weren't factors for me.
1: Well, we know a bunch of the people in the audience, and some it is an end game, and you both chose strategic investors, you both were able to change your roles, not just for you, but for Ken and others. And I would argue that you chose a transaction that wasn't anything to do with an ending. It was an intermediate step. You got rid of a shareholder base, you got your investors some good money, you took some money off the table, your management team got to become owners and you know, you basically swapped out a board and uh, 20, 30 family members for an institutional investor that probably has been challenging you to do the next five things that have to happen in your business to scale it. So this is the variety that the world we live in, which is there's folks that want out and freedom. There's folks that it's about freeing their companies to go on and do the next, and it's about freeing some of your shareholders and freeing the business. So there's no one size fits all. So actually, the varying perspectives here is, is critical for this whole audience to hear. Before you go on, I yeah. wonder
0: if some of the other people here might have some questions along those lines for some of the panelists or questions about your own business. Cam? When I think about the T-plus period, it sounds like such an anticlimax and a little bit of a bummer that you, know, you <laughs> do the transaction and then you have this reflection and hibernation period where I'll depressed. (laughs) And I I want to head that off as much as possible. And I wonder uh, what advice you guys have for either or both things to put in place that might help with that um, ahead of time or frame of mind to go into with that that may sort of help with that, you know, because, and honestly, I have a hard time even enjoying a week-long family vacation right now because I'm so adjusted to the cadence of my business and to being in charge there and having this team of people ready to do things. It's like boring to have vacation. So how do you deal with those first uh, months or years after a transaction?
5: Wow. I mean, I'll jump in. For me, it's been exceptionally helpful to have some continuity from what I was doing and I think I I wanted to know, not knowing where I would be beforehand, what would I want to slow that pace down? And the truth was, yes, I really needed to, and there were a lot of other sides of my life that needed attention that I'm happy to be bringing balance to. But beyond that, if you're in a cadence of that level of intensity, and everyone around my friends were like, you're gonna explode, what are you gonna do when you stop and you slow down? But I think there was so much intensity buildup to the transaction that I was ready to slow down and I'm only a couple months out so I might not be the best person to answer this question. But for me having some continuity and having designed something where I've got the flexibility to be as involved as I wanna be in contributing and some weeks I really do wanna go in the office and I do wanna connect with some people and be helpful and be a coach. And other times I'm happy to be planning a landscape architecture project in my backyard and that's my, that's my project, so.
1: Jen?
3: I first wanna, the day of the transaction was anything but a bummer it (laughs) just the sense of freedom and liberation and sense of satisfaction and a job well done for me was just it was a, a fabulous period of time and i i looked at that period of hibernation as just healthy and an opportunity and a much needed time to just reflect you know and I'm I'm not trying to gloss this over because I will say that, that it was it was abrupt and it was harsh and I'll talk about that too but I have appreciated I'm two years out now and I feel like I've had that time to just kind of there is a loss there is some mourning that goes along with it I won't deny that too but to have that opportunity to just be and to start thinking about what comes next and have no expectations and not have that heavy responsibility just left my shoulders that day and it was a truly delightful feeling. The harsh part about it for me was I sold to a publicly traded company. So I wasn't able to say anything about it until the day I left. And I specifically wanted no role going forward. I wanted to be bought out and move on. So my last day at the company was the day of the transaction when I got up in front of the employees and said, you have a new owner, the new CEO will be here tomorrow to meet you, and this is my last day. And it truly was. And I had no idea, conceptually, how personally disorienting that was gonna be. I, you know, just from the simple fact of, oh, okay, they're moving on without me. And I had a, an assistant who, ran my life and helped me with my life for 10 years. I had to figure out how to do everything on my own. It was harsh and it was abrupt, but it was ex- I got exactly what I wanted. So I, was, I, I knew that that was going to be OK.
0: There may be people also who want to respond to Cam's question who are in the audience. If so, we'll pass you a microphone.
4: I think that's a great question. And there are two points in time I'll touch on. One is, at the time of the deal, when it closed, hmm. um, it was kind of anticlimactic. Um, I had done a lot of these transactions in my years at Goodwin, and there's an awful lot of work that you do that leads up to this, and then it's done. And in this day and age with uh, electronic transfers, everything done by phone, you're not even in a room with the people. I mean, I, I was, you know, it came full circle. We actually used Goodwin for the transaction. I'm in a conference room. And, it was, and the other people were on the other side, were wherever they were. It was, it was kind of me in the conference room. And they say, OK, good. We're done. Uh, and it was raining out, and I thanked the lawyers. And I got in my car and drove in the rain to meet my family for dinner. So it was, it was kind of weird. Um, and I wasn't like jumping for joy, nothing like that. The other thing is very interesting how I feel now is very different from how I felt before the transaction. There was this journey. I started, there was nothing. It was just an idea. I started this business with just that idea. Again, it could have gone out of business many times over. I persevered. To have a business succeed, that, that's point one. You've got to have a business that succeeds. And then you grow it to the point where you attract a lot of investors and then you do a deal. I mean, the American dream isn't only for first generation Americans. I mean, I think I lived the American dream in that journey. Now, it's just very different. Now it's like, okay, it's a second journey, but not as meaningful. I'm staying on CEO, we've got huge potential, I got a lot that I rolled over, so there's a huge financial opportunity down the road, but how I feel about the whole adventure is different. So that adventure ended and now it's this other one that's just
2: different. Hmm. Deb? We had a slightly different experience than that. I think that we really We had both worked from the time we were like 14 years old, continually. My husband referenced when he introduced himself that we took a gap year. More like three years. We're still gapping it a bit here. And uh, I think we were quite fatigued. I really do think we were quite fatigued. We slept a lot, we went to relaxing things, we went out to eat, we became season ticket holders for the first time ever. You know, There were certain things that we had never done. We bought our first apartment so we could go watch our favorite teams in Boston. We'd never even had an apartment, ever. Always been um, responsible adults doing something, you know, primarily wage earning along the way. So I think for us it was uh, catching up, getting to do more. I got more involved with an education foundation that I enjoyed helping to start because we had more time. Ken got more involved with friends of ours that were looking to do something, and they'd knock on the door, and he could sit and talk and chat. So that's many of the things that went on that you don't really think about. I would never have said we were fatigued. I always thought we had pretty high energy, but we definitely were fatigued. I think Jan referenced that a little bit too.
0: Rob, there's some people, uh, Dave, uh, and I think Dane also had a question, and I'm thinking if I'm looking at Aaron's knitted brow, he may have a question, I'm not sure.
6: Oh, I just, um, the cadence, kind of hits home for me, and so I I kind of have a two-part question. The first is that as you're running your organization, you have that cadence, and you often come to the point where you get distracted on something, you lose the cadence, and then it's hard to get it back again. So one of the things that concerns me or one of the things that I think about as I look at forward toward a transaction is there must be incredible disruption in the way you think and the way you get up every morning when you're starting into a transaction because now you you must be getting consumed by it i mean there there must be you know i can't imagine the number of questions and conversations and ups and downs and uh, you talked about holes being drilled in your floor and good days and bad days and so i wonder if you could just touch on that is like how did you cope with that change of going from full speed ahead driving this business to Now, all of a sudden, I'm driving the business, but I also have this other really important thing that I have to do well. And at the same time, as I'm trying to do both of those things well, I'm having these incredible ups and downs. I wonder if you could just speak to that a little bit. There's the challenge right
4: there. (laughs) And and it becomes even more of a challenge when you need to keep, I mean, you're, you're now doing two jobs. And the second job, you've got to keep quiet from the people you're working with during the day. So yeah, it's a challenge. You're working harder, you're doing your job, and then you're doing this other job. So there's no question you're, you're doing both. And it, it's tough, but the rewards are worth it.
2: Deb? If I can address your question a little bit. Um, Ken and I adopted a philosophy of, okay, what's the worst thing that could happen? It's a bust. Okay, what does that mean? It means we keep doing what we're doing. And we were earning decent money. We were the only shareholders. We had great employee base. So each time we'd get down or not understand, we'd say, what's the worst that can happen? The worst that can happen is we'll keep doing what we're doing, and then we will regroup. And that was the way we approached it. And it seemed to work for us. And of course, the backup team here that's moving you through this is always available to answer some of those questions. Pete. In his velvet tones would uh, get in touch with us and calm us down. I knew we were out on a limb when he called us from New Zealand. And it was time for us to slow down and listen, and are you okay? And those are important things, because you've got this team who's helping you if you look like you're a little off or sound like you're a little off. Stephen McGee had a different approach. He'd sort of thunder at me sometimes, and then I'd regroup. Never.
1: So just in terms of the level of preparation, and it, it varies, right? So let's just, just touch on this briefly because it, it's come up. How many of you had a market did we do a market study? So so that's a long process in itself, just trying to figure that out. But how many of you thought a market study was quite helpful in the end to either run your business or to help frame it? Ross is shaking his head no. Maybe I, a,
4: to me, the market study, the Q of the other things that were done because the buyer wanted them done. It was sort of part of the things that they needed to check off. We had the market study that satisfies our requirements in our LP agreement with our investors and you know they're gonna do a E, so you might as well get ahead of it and do your own. These are all just things you gotta do. I don't think that people who spend four weeks researching, preparing a market study, are going to shed a whole lot of light on a business that I've lived for 19 years. It's, it's an objective piece of information that's important to the potential buyers. But for me, going forward, I didn't find it particularly Beneficial
1: you had a different model in an industry, so there wasn't a lot of people like you So I think you knew your model better than anybody else's mark. How about you? Did you get some value your team out of the market study because it varies by different companies?
5: Yeah I mean we and this is maybe something that we regretted after looking through it with Stephen But we kind of twisted it from a marketing study into really an investigation of some of the weak spots that we thought we had in the company So it didn't become something that was as valuable to an investor. It was actually something we debated over. How are we going to position this? Because we really aired our laundry with that. And I I used that first year of asking questions through this market work to kind of get things in line so I could communicate to my team how we were going to approach things for the next year in transaction.
1: So basically your sales and marketing strategy took a pivot. I mean, and that that market study was part of that. It did. Given the confidence to do it. And your new investors agreed, right? I mean, that part of it.
5: Yeah, they, they, it was clear what we needed to do.
1: Actually, I wanted to, I wanted to
7: first um, um, make a comment the question earlier about what it's like to go through a transaction and to try to balance. <laughs> 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 and uh, I'm, I'm in the middle of one round, I'm sort of in the arena, I'm T minus um, two months. Your question was, what is it like to juggle running the business and now everything that goes with a transaction? It's very time consuming. It's exhausting. There's no doubt about it. It's, it's the hardest you'll ever work. On the other hand, the two, of them are, the two things are very much cooperative. They, they go together. I have learned more about the business, more about what the business needs. I have gotten ideas about what the business needs, and more about myself than I have in the 33 years I've been there. I've said to some people, it's like I've gotten a second MBA. And we'll see how it plays out uh, with a very likely close in a couple of months, but it's a lot of work, but it actually becomes very exciting, assuming you've chosen the right investor, and I am convinced we have, you begin to see what it could become later on if it all goes well. And I thank Bigelow for all the work that's that's gone into this. So I wanted to wanted to comment on that.
1: Thank you for that, George. It's fresh on his mind. <laughs> David. David. So Ross reflected on the
8: challenge of dealing with people going through the process and keeping quiet. How have you thought of Of bringing your people in and how to do that? And has that been a positive thing or a challenge you had to overcome?
7: In our case, we have brought a select group of people in. And with the appropriate nondisclosure agreements and other things in terms of, of secrecy, it has been absolutely vital in our case, to have their involvement in terms of presenting the whole company to potential investors. But really, this would not have been successful had I not had their buy-in as to where we were going. We're 180 people and a management team that I've been working with for quite a few years, several of most of whom will be staying for some time with the company. I'll be staying on for a couple of years. They have actually become a, critical in, in assuring the likely buyer of the value of, of the purchase, in essence. Uh, it's tricky. You have to, you have to manage uncertainty. You have to, there are those in the know, so to speak. You deal with a rumor mill. There's no way you can stop it. We were not in a situation where we could do it where only I knew about it. We had management meetings, presentations, all of the rest. But it's taken the whole group to really convince the final investor that this is going to work.
4: I, I just want to um, clarify a little bit. There were key core group of, of people that I needed to inform them what was going on. They were going to participate in management meetings, presentations to potential investors, so they needed to know what they were there for and what was expected of them. But also, in connection with the due diligence, there's a lot of information that needed to be provided. And so you needed your CFO to know what was going on. You needed the HR person to know to give information about employees. So there were a core group that knew about it. What we did is gave a... $50,000 $50,000 transaction bonus to each of those individuals subject to the deal closing. And that was in exchange for their enthusiastic cooperation <laughs> and their, um, their work and their confidentiality.
1: So, Jen, you had, a, you had a sophisticated management team, like I think the three of you did. Deb, I would say your team was a little lighter. It was actually a little bit of the, the Ken and Deb show. So, so just reflect on how did you handle your management team and, and just did the process help that team come together?
3: Yeah, Ross, you, you brought up a good point and I was thinking of it too, that, that, that it's also hard on the organization because my CFO had to work hard and keep things quiet but also be right there to to answer all the questions that came up in the due diligence phase. And there were, in my organization too, there was a small handful of people kind of on a need to know basis that had to know what was going on. Um, and I would say by the time the transaction happened, the employees were kind of wondering why accounting was asking all these questions. You know, there, it was it went on long enough that people start figuring out that Something's up. They don't know what, but they've they've figured it out. I think the transaction did make a big difference to my executive team. They they were all kept on. That was a very clear part of the transaction, that they were to remain intact as a team. I think they responded to that. They appreciated that. They rose to the occasion. There was a big organizational change in my company because you go from a um, single-owner, family-based business to a publicly traded company it requires a big, big change, particularly for the, uh, the people who are in accounting. And there was a big learning curve post-transaction. The, the other piece that, that was a surprise to me is my job in the transaction didn't end the day of the transaction. People would say to me, "You know, are you enjoying your retirement? What are you doing? And I had pretty much a, a full-time post-transaction job that lasted almost a year. There were things that came out of the due diligence period that required my work and my participation. I retained the building that we owned, so I became the landlord. I had all kinds of extraction kind of work from many different companies, because it wasn't just one company, that we had kind of a portfolio, if you will, of a couple of different companies that had been formed. So there's a lot of work post-transaction as well. The actual retirement didn't come for a good year after.
1: Thank you. Mark,
3: you got a quick,
1: yeah, quick one? I, sure. I
7: do have a question. So I'm glad we're talking about preparation. Um, we're probably T, my partner and I are probably T minus four to five. And I, the question I want to ask you is, and the only analogy I can think about would be staging a house for sale. There are things that you're suggested to do to get your organization ready to be marketed. So were there difficult decisions you had to make or trade-offs you had to make about things about your organization that you may not have wanted to give up but you had to do in order to position your company uh, for the maximum valuation or whatever your criteria of success would be. Could you give us some examples of things that you didn't think you might have to do, that you were suggested to do either by Bigelow or by other advisors that you work with that you might not have contemplated? And again, I want to
0: suggest that panelists might want to answer, but there might be some people in the audience who have experience in this might want to offer an answer too.
4: I think that's a, a great question. I had been contacted over the years by a number of different uh, private equity firms. It's a little intoxicating when they call you and they express an interest, you meet with them and and I went down a path with one of them a little bit further. You know, they give you an offer letter and then they do a little more due diligence and then they you know, they talk about some of the weaknesses and then they back off on the multiple. It was at that point when I said, I gave myself a timeline. I said, you know what? I'm gonna dot my I's, cross my T's, and be ready to go back in 18 to 24 months. I wanna get my my earnings up a little higher and try to scrub it a little bit so that there's less issues. We had one very large customer um, that caused a, a buyer to look at it a lot more carefully, and uh, so we had to pay extra careful attention to what's the story you know, that we're gonna tell with regard to that customer. Um, I actually found that process of going down a path very educational, and really that's what it was for. I didn't expect to really do a deal, but I learned a lot going down that path, clean things up. I, I would say that we brought on Bigelow after I got to the point where now's the time to do a deal. You made a decision. But I would suggest that people who are thinking of doing a deal engage an advisor in advance to help you get your ducks in a row.
5: Well, I would say that. I mean, I think what Bigelow did really well is really take to heart the success criteria I had so your question seemed to be, did you have to give up something really massive along the way to get there? Sure. And I think because I had put out a multifaceted success criteria that was really held by them, that I would say, no, we didn't, because yeah. those were the boundaries. These are really what mattered. And then there were other things that we were willing to kind of, and expected to be able to negotiate on.
1: Okay. We switch uh, gears, and then we're, we're gonna ask um, for a few more questions. Just thinking about this forum and the head versus heart, do any of you want to just describe how you've made decisions? More head, more heart. Do you have an example of a decision that you had to make in your career or around the transaction that sort of illuminates that tension? To all, me, all of you, yeah. Let's, it, uh, everyone wants yeah. it on this one. Yeah. Well,
4: hearts, that's out. Okay. <laughs> Again. <laughs> I think we get that. It's, it's uh, <laughs> I look at the facts as they're available. Many of you probably read Jack Welch's first book, Straight from the Gut. And he would say, "You in, in decision making, you evaluate all of the information that's available to you. It's never going to be 100%. But what is available to you or what you can find, you evaluate it. And then you go with your gut. So, uh, to me, it's not so much heart, as it is a little gut, yep. which comes after the rational analysis. Dan?
3: I think you and I need to have a beer. <laughs> we we can arrange so that. so differently. I am all about heart, and I yeah. knew you, I had a feeling you'd say yeah. that. <laughs> I, I know. I am a real I,
4: nice guy. I Just know you are! Heart.
3: I know! <laughs> <laughs> tell us that. I know that my decisions are made by my heart, and I know that they're very often made before my head is in that place. And sometimes that's not not an easy thing, because I can recognize that I know something feels right, I know it's what I'm going to do, but all this other data is coming in trying to either teach me otherwise or convince me otherwise. And sometimes that's helpful, and sometimes it gets in the way. I know that by the time I finally execute that decision, I've probably made it a while back, and that has led me to where I go with it. So I'm all about it.
1: Deb, how about you? I
3: don't know.
2: Said differently, as you like to say, Rob. To me, it comes down to common sense. It's head versus heart or common sense versus whatever other variables are attacking you. It's a common sense approach. And we had a very difficult one. We had three advisors outside of Bigelow for the history of our company. Our IT person, our accountant, and a financial advisor. And we had decided to go with Bigelow. Our heads were spinning, but we were delighted. And our financial advisor told us, one, we took them all out, told them what was going on. And he said, I hope you can get that money back. And I'm going, what? excuse me, and he started to tell us all the reasons that we shouldn't be engaging somebody to help us. And we both felt that he was 100% wrong and the dicey part was maintaining the friendship which we'd had for 20 years and saying thank you, but uh, you know, I'll see you for dinner next week and we're not discussing business anymore. And it was difficult, we maintained the relationship, but our common sense said to us, we don't know what we don't know, we need this group, We need their input. We need to be able to bounce things off people when we, and that was a common sense approach to, we need support and we're getting it through Bigelow and we're going this way. And we did manage to navigate the relationship, but it was tough to hear
1: Yeah, and so this, Mark, gets to some of your points, some of the preparations, not just preparation of the company, but preparation of the owner-manager, but what other advisors do we need to have that are different that augment the team but don't wreck the historic relationships of the people who have, you know, gotten you to this point? So, yeah, that's always a tough one. Well, in that case, the the
2: other two advisors were 100% on with us. Right. So odd man out, it was it was obvious, and our accountant and our IT person who'd helped us with so many things for over 20 years.
1: Mark, you want to add anything on
5: head versus heart? I mean, ironically, my business's mission, being in education, had a lot to do with kids' head, heart, and hands, how we put those together. And so I've always tried to integrate the two and generally feel like I have a gut and I have been knowing, and then I research the hell out of it, whether it's to pressure test that knowing that comes, and I guess you'd call that gut, because it's definitely a feeling notion of something, but it certainly needs to be backed up with some hard questioning to kind of move in that direction. So, yeah, as far as an example goes, I mean, I think I started to rationalize in myself, I knew that I wasn't the person for this next step, that'd be betraying myself in some way to take it. But it's fairly seductive when you look at the mechanics of what are required to build value well, I could do this another year or two years. And I did it for a certain amount of time to change the trajectory of where we were going. But I started to convince myself that maybe I should do this for longer. There's a lot more value that could be created. And then my knowing was, no, you know, it's time. And actually the transaction's gonna go great now. And it did. So I'm glad I didn't convince myself because on paper I could have convinced differently than what I really knew.
1: Deb, you were not just in the business you had another hat to wear. And so, Pete brought this up earlier, but who's your most important advisor? Are some of them sitting beside you? And so, I'd like to just open up this conversation. Deb, you had a dual role. You worked in the company, but you also were the spouse of Ken. Just give us a little insight into the spousal view of what you guys went through emotionally at home during all this.
2: To say it was difficult is probably an understatement but we did try to keep a balance, a balance of conversation. Like I said before, what's the worst thing that's gonna happen? Are we in this together? If we fail, we fail. Many late night conversations for the most part. Trying to come to a resolution of who's feeling what at any moment. I'm a very practical uh, approach to things and we take them one step at a time. Ken would be, is this good, this isn't good, what about this, is this gonna happen? And we would also solicit help from Bigelow. you know, I might talk to Steven or Rob and, and say, you wanna to talk to Ken? Because I, I, I'm not even really understanding what's bothering him, so how can you help me get through? And I think that always keeping the lines of communication open as best you can, especially if there's a, something that is really sticking in your craw that you don't get, that you don't understand, whether it's your first job, which is keeping the company going, or your second job of trying to get all this information together to solicit a buyer. Keep the lines of communication open, and I think we did a fairly good job about doing that. We were also pretty good about dropping back and taking some time for ourselves, whether it was a weekend or just a night out or whatever. Turn off your phone, go do something that was unrelated.
1: Uh, Allison, you got a question uh, well, or a comment? Yeah,
2: I do, but I'm, I think I'm a little out of sync here, because okay. i back to head heart. We can, we can go <laughs> so. head heart. Is that all right? Yeah, yeah. So um, I have a head hard question. It's really money heart question. Did any of you have a situation where the money was very compelling and you had a buyer where your heart may have been pulling to a much less compelling offer?
5: I'd certainly speak to that.
4: Everything worked out beautifully for me. Because the group I liked the best that I was most comfortable working with was the one that offered the most. So no uh, decision there. (laughs) Mark?
5: Yeah, no, I had that situation, absolutely. And I was in a fortunate position that I was way above the number that I was hoping to with most of the offers. So that's a nice place to be. And then it becomes a question, well, what are your priorities beyond a certain point? I think through the help of Bigelow was able to just kind of leverage the party I really wanted and say, look, these other folks over here are saying this, and, and what can we do to kind of come to? But I, there was no question in my mind that I was not going to take simply the largest pot of money over the other criteria that I had for my people, for the legacy of what we did, for the benefit of what we do as an organization. But I, I certainly had a, a criteria of what I wanted to hit first.
4: It's important to know what your plan is. If you're gonna sell and be out, then take the biggest pile of cash. Well, if you care about your employees, then you wanna make sure that, that they're well taken care of. But in my case, I was staying on. And I didn't wanna work with jerks. I mean, I, I had these growth plans. And so I wanted people that were bringing to the table Um, capabilities, expertise, relationships that were actually going to help me grow the way I wanted to grow. But I also wanted to feel good about the group I was working with. So I would not have taken more money if I were not comfortable with the people I would be working with.
1: So let me ask you, Allison. we had a meeting where you asked me, it was a very large group that came through and you wanted to know if they were the right, if they paid a really big amount, if we're going to be okay with that. It began with an L. And so just describe that. Because I think that we purposefully, in your situation, we kicked some people out for that very reason.
2: We did kick them out, but they hadn't offered a number. Right. And somebody else came in right away with a very large number. Yep,
1: yep. So that's Had
2: they not had a very large number, we might have kicked them out too.
1: Agreed, agreed. So,
2: just saying.
1: Sometimes. (laughs) Yeah. Was that head or heart?
2: What, the kicking them out part?
1: Let's keep on this spouse section for a minute. Chris Root, you're out here. Uh, Mark, you just went through this, so this has got to be fresh in your mind. Just give us a little snapshot of your experience from a, a spouse to share.
9: Uh, you know, I'm not sure this answers the, the direct question, Rob, but I'm, I'm sitting here and I'm kind of struck with something you said, Cam, about the intensity of this kind of entrepreneurial spirit and thinking about my amazing partner and what an intense person he is. And as his spouse, I feel like um, navigating, really wanting to honor who he is and all that he was needing to kind of bring to this company with, you know, honestly, from a spousal perspective, very real concern about the toll and the burden and the responsibility and kind of just navigating both. So I don't know if that answers that question specifically, but the, you know, the 20-hour days that seemed like years and years of 20-hour days and raising a family and wondering at what point do we start to shift this? Does that answer your question?
1: Yeah, and so there? was hiring Bigelow and deciding to get this whole started, was that a, a relief to you or did that put more stress and burden?
9: Well, it was more stress, but it was an enormous relief. I mean, we spent years of just the two of us kind of workshopping late at night on our deck, just processing, and like I said, I am not in this world, I'm a therapist, right? So. I would be Mark's sounding board, but he really, you know, was pretty alone with some very intense demands. And when the phone calls first started from you, Rob, and then Stephen and Mark had somebody to talk to at 11 o'clock at night, that wasn't me, (laughs) (laughs) who was way more qualified and um, competent with the things he was wrestling with. It was an enormous relief to just feel like with everything he was holding, somebody else could hold with him and kind of look around the corners with him.
1: Thank you, thank you for that. uh, Let me just ask Don, because Don, your caricatures were so wonderful, uh, you know, taking the language that we developed and Pete in the book and then putting it to actually your situation with Allison and Vermont Kramer. As a spouse, what was just your perspective on this whole evolution? Just give us a quick take.
8: Well, I was pretty uh, emotionally invested in this because I was a Peace Corps volunteer in Botswana. And I brought the notion of goats, I wanted. I was a back to land hippie, half-assed, $50,000 a year uh, fresh goat milk business. And Allison and her business partner, Bob Reese, took this little half-assed thing and elevated By the time she and Bob finished, they had a hundred and some employees, uh, 30 million in sales and so on. And it came time we discussed the uh, transaction and... I had lived with her tensions over this thing for 35 years, so I was ready, as long as the kids didn't want the business, to say, okay, but I wanted it to be a really great transaction because I was going to have to live with her after it was done. <laughs> so she had to feel whole. She had to feel complete. It couldn't be that her identity now, her, all that stuff, go down the drain. So, and ironically, all of a sudden an old college buddy appears and he wants the job that you guys were uh, nurturing. So he takes us out to supper. We stay at their apartment in Chicago. They'd done a bunch of billion dollar transactions and stuff. We go to Cuba with them for, spent a week. I mean, it was amazing. And so then we said, okay, Scott, why don't you come and make a proposal? And we sat up over beers one night, and I asked him uh, the Jan question, really, what is the community going to say when they say, you sold out? Are you kidding me? You too? Even you purists? You wonder? You know? I said, how do you deal with that? He says, oh, jeez, everybody sells out, for crying out loud. <laughs> so he didn't nurture my concern in any way. Peter, your, the word that I've got is mellifluous. You guys are smart, creative, uh, skilled, a whole bunch of stuff. This conference really exemplifies that, uh, the care that you put into this stuff. But what I learned in the transaction with my buddy was people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And you guys really took my concerns Seriously, you didn't exploit them, but you listened attentively. You put together a field trip to our top seven competitors, the ones that wanted to buy the business, and uh, it was unbelievable. You made a timeline and you stuck to it, and when you learned that Sandy Reese and I wanted to go on the trip, you, you knew we were going to be a pain in the ass, but you allowed us anyway, and it was a very successful Adventure. So, any of you who are thinking of getting these guys, make sure you build in Tanzania. It's a great place to go.
1: <laughs> so you brought up you brought up uh, Sandy, and you brought up. Uh... Oh boy. <laughs> yeah, we'll just leave that one. <laughs> All right. Well, look, how about uh, another spouse? You you, you want to ask a question? Is there a spouse out there? Ken?
4: Uh, We have been to Tanzania. It is (laughs) good. When you do work with your spouse like we did, you're putting in 60 hours a week. Uh, You set a place for the business at the table. When you start to go through the transactions, you start to realize the things that are going to be the burden that's going to be removed from your spouse, what they're not going to have to deal with. half of running the business is dealing with all the hell, you know, the good stuff just gets put in the balance sheet right away, all the problems go home with you, so with your spouse, one of the things you do recognize early in the transition is, oh, you're not going to have to deal with that, we'll get rid of that, getting out is going to relieve a certain part of that intense, you know, 60-hour-a-week worry, so there is a value in working with your spouse as you go into the transition, That actually helps you want to make the transition.